source for Big Ten Talk. It's off tackle Empire. Welcome back to Off Tackle Empire, where we are in. We've gotten past the semifinals of the 2020 football season, and now we are ready to buckle down and, um, well, you know, watch this sport that none of our teams play. Yeah, it's that time of year when it's, you know, the, the freshman level teams and the junior varsity teams, you know, your Wisconsin's, your Iowa's. You go ahead and wrap up the season. We're not going to do a state championship for you. That would be kind of pointless now, wouldn't it? Time for the big kids to play. And, yeah, it's that time of year because it's, you know, getting the NFL playoffs. There's an expanded field there. We just riffed for a few minutes about, you know, thank God the playoffs expanded so that we could see this 8-8 eight and eight Chicago Bears team led by a resurgent Mitch Trubisky who might just get to 50% completion on the year. I'm exaggerating. I mean, maybe he's done that already, but you get the point. Uh, no, they, I mean, they ran a game plan as though they wanted him to be able to boast 50% completions because he had, what was he like 27 for 30 for like 20 yards? Yeah, you were watching this game, of course, being a Packers fan. I flipped it on towards the end because we were going to podcast at the end of it. And they put up Trubisky's stat line. And I forget what it was at that point, but let me pull it up. I can take a look at exactly what it was because it was remarkable. So <laughs> there was a point in the fourth quarter in a game that at that point was still, I mean, the Packers opened it up at the end, but it was still competitive. And at one point, Trubisky was 26 for 30, very impressive, but for 198 yards. And I just texted you and asked, what is the opposite of explosive? Because that would be the Bears. <laughs> and it's, and you, you responded that you feel like you're watching Mick McCall. And it I, felt very Northwestern to watch that game, except yeah. that the Bears weren't winning. Right, right. Because if the they if just was, kept getting two point six yards at a time, and they had the sixteen points that Northwestern gets. The difference is the Packers aren't Iowa, so you can't hold them to twelve. <laughs> well, not to mention it would have been a little bit different if Marcus Valdez Scantling hadn't dropped just a wide open touchdown. That Rogers, I don't know how he could have. The only way he could have put it on him any better, and this is probably what he'll have to start doing with that guy, is if he'd managed to get it stuck in between his helmet and his shoulder pad, like in his neck area. I was going to say like in his face, like in the opening of his face mask. Yeah, that's the only way he could have gotten it in there more, (laughs) any more perfect. So I got to feel like that game takes on a different complexion if it's 28-16 and the Bears are just running 2.6 yard plays, um, which 2.6 is just a little more than 2.5, which means that you're doing as little as possible to get (laughs) 10 yards, more than 10 yards on four downs. Um, and so there's been persistent chatter that Pat Fitzgerald is supposedly open to NFL overtures now. And most of us in the Slack, I think, concluded that this had to mean the Bears because, you know, he, he makes a point of always showing up at Chicago Cubs games in the jerseys and just being basically your Chicago bro guy. So if that game was, if that opening was there, we assume that would probably be the first thing you'd be interested in. But like, again, the, the Bears are in the playoffs now. <laughs> like, even if they lose the first game, which they probably will, is, do, you, do you fire your coach after getting to 500 after, you know, starting what were they like six and one or six and two at some point? And then Mr. Trubisky turned back into a pumpkin and then he unturned into a pumpkin and they rally to make the playoffs. Like, I don't think you fire a coach at that point. Yeah, well, I mean, Mr. Biscuits is heading to Seattle, um, which, by the way, I was watching the 49ers-Seahawks uh, game, which 
appears to have been taking place in Arizona because uh, the, the the stadium was decked out in 49ers stuff, but I, I just saw that they were heading towards the end zone and it said Oregon on the end zone, but it just had this red over it. It said this big, like, yeah, like, like, like it was like red highlighter. So... Yeah, well, you know what that is, is so I mean, the Niners, in addition to most other, well, all other California teams, I believe, can't play games in their home stadium right now. So at some point, their, you know, facilities manager or whatever you call him is discussing preparations with the groundskeeper at the visiting stadium. And they ask, like, oh, you know, there was just a college football game here a couple of days ago. No, so, literally yesterday. Yeah, well, yeah. So we're going to have to spray the end zone. It's like, you know. To, to really cover up because it was Oregon, so it's bright yellow. We're going to have to put two coats on. That's going to cost the guys like, whoa, 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 stop, 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 stop. I ain't paying you for two coats of spray over. I'm sure it's going to be fine. Just make sure you cover the whole thing in red. That's one of our colors. Everyone will make that. It'll be fine, but we're not paying for no two coats. It'll look great. It'll look great. <laughs> hey, we're we're talking about the Packers, which means we've got Wisconsin fans' attention. So let's talk about the Duke's Mayo Bowl. Oh, God. So I'm trying to remember because we've been at this for a while now and you and I know each other pretty well. We're getting to the point, you know, the point you are like in a committed romantic relationship where you know all of each other's stories at a certain point. And I'm trying to remember if I've ever shared with you my personal history with mayonnaise and why in particular I don't eat it. I don't believe you have. So a little bit of exposition here. And if we lose the Wisconsin fans along the way, that's fine. In college at Michigan State, I worked in the dorm cafeteria. And as you know, as many what dorm? So this year, I would have this would have been Hubbard and Acres Halls. Um, Means nothing to me, but it'll mean something to some of our listeners. Yeah, east, very easternmost edge of campus, kind of far the hell away from everything, unless you were in the business college, which it wasn't. So it was just a long walk everywhere. But being a dorm cafeteria, they were generally pretty accommodating with their worker schedules because if, you know, you have class schedule, it's going to be difficult, especially during the week to work a six or eight hour shift. So you would occasionally have shifts that were just like an hour and a half or two hours because that was all that you had that your schedule allowed for. And they were fine with that. So it was a very good job for college student in that way. Well, my first semester, I had one shift in particular, Monday afternoons, I'll never forget it, 1230 to two o'clock. And it was in the salad section. And because that was a little bit after the lunch rush, there wasn't a whole lot to do in terms of actually salad bar. So what they had me do, because I was only there for a short period of time, was every week I was responsible for making the ranch. Most condiments they would you know, bring in already made, you know, your ketchup, your mustard, barbecue sauce comes in these big plastic tubs. If you've ever worked in a restaurant, you know what I'm talking about. The mayonnaise, however, they made on or the uh, the ranch they made on site, and I've given away the ending here because if you weren't aware, the primary ingredient in ranch is mayonnaise. That did come in the industrial two-gallon plastic tubs, and me never having worked in food service before, the first time I show up for this shift, one of the full timers hands me a little card with a recipe on it, and he's like, "We're gonna have you make the ranch today. Grab all these ingredients out of the cooler." Uh, put them in the mixer and you'll just do what the card says. Let me know if you have any questions. So I get all the stuff together. Again, mayo is the main thing, but you also have buttermilk. And then this sort of like seasoning mix basically just comes also in a plastic tub. Mayonnaise a lot of butter in his range. Oh boy. So I get all the stuff together and then I take the lid off of the mayonnaise jar, this big plastic two gallon thing. And I go to start shaking it into the mixing 
machine, except it doesn't come out because being mayonnaise, it is of a sticky and viscous character. So it doesn't want to leave the tub. And I'm like violently shaking it and it doesn't budge. And the full but it's just jiggling, I assume, on the surface? It's, it's wobbling around. Like I can feel it moving a little bit in the tub, but it doesn't want to come out. And so the full timer kind of passes by and he's like, oh, no, no, no. Here, let me show you. And he takes it and he puts the lid back, on, screws the plastic lid back on and then takes a, a knife and pokes a hole in the bottom and then turns it back upside down and takes the lid off. And the whole thing, it's like, it, you know, there's this vacuuming sound like. <laughs> <laughs> and the whole thing, like this whole two gallon, just container shaped. Oh, yeah. In, in the exact shape. And, you know think of the cranberry sauce you take out of the can at Thanksgiving, except white and mayonnaise. (laughs) All two gallons just drops out into the mixing thing all at once. Splat like little gobs of it splatter up on me. He's like, there you go. And he walks away and I'm just like, Oh, okay. So since that day, I have never eaten ranch. I have never eaten mayonnaise. I'll go for a little aioli here and there. If it's like on the sandwich, and it's clear the restaurant doesn't want to do substitutions, but that's my mayonnaise story. That's that. If you're ever wondering, that's what ranch is pretty much just mayonnaise with a little bit of seasoning. Who boy. So anyway, that kind of, that kind of seems like what happened to wake forest, but a lot faster. Well, I mean, even with Wisconsin running as often as they tried to, the, the runtime of this game was probably still a little bit longer than the average length of that shift I had. Uh, but, but yeah, so so the problem here for Wake Forest, and look, they scored 28 points. So maybe it's fair to say that, look, it's not like they were completely shut down. But the reason that they eventually ground to a halt, because they scored 14 of those points on their first two possessions of the game. When they were running their scripted stuff, everything worked pretty well. But Wisconsin was definitely able to adjust to what Wake Forest wanted to do a lot better. And Wake, for the last few years under Dave Clawson, has been an extremely balanced offense. I remember this, of course, because MSU played Wake last year in a bowl game and I was it was remarkable how even the pass attempts versus rushing attempts were yardage was pretty even they had a number of pass catchers that they distributed the ball to pretty evenly two running backs who again got just about the same number of carries and they had a pretty close profile to that again this year they're just they're all about balance but especially after halftime Wisconsin shut down their one game to such an extent you know Wake only got 111 yards on 35 carries and it's not sack adjusted, but Wisconsin only had one sack. Wake Forest then has to turn and put all the pressure on the passing game, especially once Wisconsin figured things out offensively and started putting more pressure on them. And so they ended up, you know, Wisconsin gets four interceptions on four consecutive possessions starting late in the third quarter. And obviously like, you, you can't win a game doing that, even whether you're up two scores down two or it's tied four interceptions and four possessions, you're going to have a bad time. Yeah, I mean, and that's basically just the classic characteristics of what we call a boat race, which is just when the wake from the leading boat is preventing you from catching that boat. Yep. And so, of course, in in the aftermath of this, the inaugural mail bowl, and who else but Wisconsin could appropriately represent the Big Ten in such a bowl, the Wisconsin football team in their celebration broke the trophy. In particular, it was Graham Mertz. And then perfectly they basically taped a bottle of mayonnaise to the top of it in place of whatever you know whatever normie boring glass display was there they just (laughs) taped a bottle of mayonnaise on top of it and i tell you like i get that it won't happen because the people responsible for making those decisions are the most boring 
you know, corporate neutrals that you will ever encounter. But if they had any sense at all, if they wanted to get their bull in the forefront of college football's collective consciousness, they would run with it. This is the kind of goofy story that's at the origin of most of the trophy games that people care about, for example. You know, and here's the thing. If any bowl game was going to do it, I think it would be this one because I'm I'm pretty sure it used to be the Belk Bowl and they seem to have retained a lot of the same social media people because they're a very online and self-aware bowl game. Yes, we're talking about this bowl game like it's a person, but I mean, (laughs) brands are people. Well, yeah, and in the sense that there is a person pushing the buttons on the Twitter account, there is a person that is responsible for this. And it, it was, yeah, the Belk Bowl once upon a time. But I forget if Belk has gone out of business altogether or if they just found the naming rights to a low-tier bowl game to be a little bit too pricey. But either way, uh, <laughs> all right, so... They got to tighten up their Belk a little bit. And uh, Okay, so... <laughs> uh, looking big picture a little bit here for Wisconsin, obviously a disappointing season overall. There's a couple ways you could look at it. The one is that, look, you know, we had a COVID disruption right at the beginning of the season, never really got back on track after that. Then you had additional injuries at spots you couldn't afford injuries, in particular a wide receiver. Because once Danny Davis and Kendrick Pryor both went out, this passing game crumbled into dust. They had some mo- they had their moments on the ground. You know, against Minnesota, they had a decent run game with Garrett Groshek, but Jalen Berger's injury clearly held them back there. I think he's their obvious lead back, but They've got to find better weapons for Mertz in the passing game, or he's never going to be anything more than another Joel Stave. Which would not be the worst thing in the world, except is the rest of the offense up to that level? I don't think not, it is. Not just yet. And it, it's reasonable to assume that their offensive line will probably be okay. They have some very high-level younger players there that haven't seen the field yet. But if you want, I mean, it's it's not fair to assume, even for Wisconsin, that Jalen Berger is going to be Jonathan Taylor or Melvin Gordon. Like that's an unfair assumption. And it would be, it would seem to be so much easier to just find a couple of league average wide receivers, but they don't have that right now. The good news is uh, Jake Ferguson, the tight end did announce that he's going to be returning for his senior season. And on the defensive side, Jack Sanborn, a possible NFL draftee at linebacker is going to be doing the same thing. So they're going to have some turnover on the defensive line. And in the secondary, they're going to need to get over but not, it's not a guarantee. I mean, a few of those guys are going to go because they have NFL opportunities, but it'll be interesting to see with Wisconsin, with every team, what degree guys choose to take advantage of that fifth year, that bonus year of eligibility that applies to everyone this year. You know, good luck predicting depth charts. For example, I mean, our preview series is going to be a nightmare if guys have, because we don't really have a sense of when, Players are going to make those decisions official. I, presumably, their coaches will put a little bit of pressure on them. Like, at least let us know before spring practice, right? Like, if if I need to sign guys to come in or hit the transfer portal to replace you, it would be great if I knew that before, like, the 4th of July, right? <laughs> so, <clears throat> excuse me. I think that my Acadian Groove Maple Porter may be a little past the expiration date. And <laughs> this is very unpleasant because, my goodness, I love that beer um man liquor stores are doing this now where they're taking really good beers and just like you know leaving it it. yeah it's just like okay this didn't sell when do we take it down never when it sells (laughs) yeah so i'm i'm pretty upset about this because that's uh one of my favorite beers and it does not taste like it is supposed to and part of that poured a little chunky so that is uh that is a damn shame (laughs) hey look oberon in january (laughs) Ugh. Oh, man. Uh, carrying right along here. 
Citrus Bowl outcome. Northwestern 35, Auburn 19. And this is yet another game after which I, I wonder, what does the Big Ten as a conference have to do to cultivate the built-in excuse the SEC has for losing any non-playoff bowl game? which is to just say, oh, well, it's not a big enough game, so the, the team didn't really care. They didn't show up. They didn't try. What Do we have to just – I mean, it, it doesn't feel like there's actually any evidence of that. Like, no one can produce hundreds of player interviews where they confirm, oh, yeah, I didn't give a shit about that Outback Bowl. That's why we lost to, you know, whoever from the Big Ten. We're, we would have beaten them by 40 if, if any of us had actually cared, but we went out and got drunk the night before. We didn't care at all yet to see a single piece of evidence that this is actually a thing. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, especially though, what was remarkable was how little Georgia was trying in their bowl game against Cincinnati until like two seconds were remaining in the game, at which point they were winning and then suddenly they were trying. Well, it was always within Georgia's ability to just win whenever they decided to try. So to be charitable, they just decided to give Cincinnati the illusion of being the better team for, you know, 58 or 59 minutes and 58 seconds of the game. Ah, so like God with Russell Wilson in that NFC title game when when God just made Russell Wilson throw four picks so it would be more exciting for Russell Wilson when he won the game in overtime. That's still the weirdest, the weirdest. <laughs> God made me throw those picks so it would be more dramatic. That is still the weirdest thing I've ever heard of. Now, I'm trying to remember... If you and I have previously and pretty recently had a discussion about the grouchy ladybug. I, this does not ring a bell. Do you know what I'm talking about at all? No. Okay. So there's a children's author named Eric Carl. Um, he, he, a lot of really good books, but among them is a book called the grouchy ladybug. Any relation to George Carl? I don't believe so, no. Um, their names are spelled different. <laughs> Although, you know, it obviously easy to bring him up. No, easy to bring him up in the context of a grouchy insect, but no. Uh, different Carl, I believe. So in, in this, the, the story just starts with these two ladybugs. And one of them, as you might guess, is grouchy. And he challenges the other ladybug to a fight. And the ladybugs, the other ladybug's like, yo, I'm good to go, drop hands. And then the first ladybug says, nah, you know what? You're not even big enough for me to fight. I'm going to get out of here and fight something better than you. I'm, I'm paraphrasing a little bit. But basically, once his, his challenge to fight is accepted, he backs out of the fight on the premise of, oh, this isn't even going to be a challenge. I need to go find something that will actually be interesting to fight. And then he travels the world, still in a bad mood, looking for something to fight. And he keeps challenging bigger and bigger things, like, like a stag beetle and a praying mantis. And eventually, he challenges a damn whale to a fight. And the whale doesn't even answer him. It just kicks his ass back across the entire planet, back to where he started. This sounds kind of like Street Fighter. <laughs> um, it's got a little bit of a different tenor than that, because again, like along the way, each successive thing he challenges is like, all right, bro, pull up. Um, but then he keeps backing out. And again, that's kind of the content. Like, like that's the kind of mindset that I picture from whether it's the media or the fan base or maybe even a coach in the the rare situation where they say these kinds of things that's like, oh yeah, you know, we weren't motivated. We're not actually interested in this. You know, if this had been a sugar bowl, we would have showed up and fought and been a lot better. Like basically (laughs) that's what what it made me think of. So I didn't watch this game because I was watching the other game, but it seems like the, the theme 
the themes were there in both of them. And the other game, they spent precious little time actually talking about the game, the Georgia-Cincinnati game, and a lot more time talking about what does this mean and does the game that we're being paid to cover actually matter? I don't really want to get existential with my bowl games here, but like they also kept talking about it as though anything was going to change. If Cincinnati wins that game, how is it any different than UCF beating Auburn a few years ago? Yeah, well, you know, as we all remember, when Boise State beat Oklahoma in that dramatic fiesta bowl, it proved once and for all the group of five belonged, and that's why they've played for so many national titles since. When Utah slapped the living shit out of Alabama, that absolutely did it. That was the nail in the coffin for the SEC. So, yeah, no, they ask this question because I assume on those big national broadcasts, they think that they think they're appealing to the same casual fan that the elevation of the playoff is supposed to capture which is we're going to grind this down and talk about it so much that everyone's going to have some idea what's going on you know you don't have to get into oh what are the rivalries what's the context of the conference race you just have to know these two or three teams that actually have a realistic chance of winning it nothing else matters and so we're just going to make sure everybody knows their lines so to speak and so they keep repeating this, which is, you know, well, if you're watching this game, we don't really know if it matters. What do you think? Do you think it matters? Is this the game that convinces the powers that be, whoever they are, it's definitely not us, that maybe a team like Cincinnati or Boise State or Utah or whoever deserves an opportunity to play for a title? Do you think this is going to be the time when they – oh, no, they lost. That's gonna, It's going to be another decade before we can even consider putting a team in the top ten. That's This is just a disgrace. Can't believe we were hoodwinked into putting Cincinnati this high. And uh, I meant to talk about this during a different bowl game recap, but might as well talk about it here. Uh, The outcome of a bowl game has nothing to do with whether or not the teams deserved to be there. No, of course not. Because there's, there's never any telling. First of all, half the time teams lose assistance to other coaching jobs. Players already have their head in their NFL preparation. Most players theoretically have finals to take. It's so much of a different setting than you get during the season. Now, that's not quite true this year because the season ran so long that the Bulls were like a week after the end of the year. But uh, it, no, the outcome of a bowl does not say anything one way or another about whether either of those teams deserve to be there. No, it doesn't. I mean, you can you can go all the way back with however many bowls and just, you know, you say you, if you, uh, I guess if you just, don't take the uh, conference alignments and whatever is sacred, then you can say that any team didn't belong, didn't deserve to be in any bowl that they didn't win. Yeah. Well, it's, it's kind of the same thing. Like if you were to say, well, any team that loses in the first round of the NCAA tournament didn't deserve to be there. <laughs> you know, a lot of the time those teams are just conference champions from lower tier conferences who end up against the one seed. You know, they, by definition, deserve to be there. They won their conference. That's a criteria for making the NCAA tournament. So, And somebody has to lose in the first round. Otherwise, right. it's not really a tournament. No, uh, and the second and third. I mean, if you go to the logical extreme, it's like saying every team that doesn't win the tournament didn't deserve to be there. <laughs> exactly. A little bit strained, but... The- but that is kind of how we used to decide our national champion in college football. And things were better then. Yeah, well, huh, things were better... Early, the earlier you go in the history of the game, things seem to be better, but there, there were always, I think, counter arguments to that. So, well, get- I mean, not if you go, you, you basically have to stop right at 1951. <laughs> right. Cause before that, yeah. No, you had to stop right at 1951 and have it never be earlier or later. So to complete our discussion then of Northwestern versus Auburn, we've done this very detailed X's and O's 
breakdown. <laughs> Look, the actual story of this game is that Northwestern was decisively better than what probably the fifth best SEC team. And there was really nothing fluky about it. This was a very Northwestern game. They put up more points than they usually do, but turnovers, well, zero for Northwestern. They got, they did get one out of Auburn. Neither team had any issues kicking or punting. Both passing games were passable in today's, by today's standards, around 300 yards each. Neither team did much on the ground, but Northwestern stuck with it at a much higher volume and got just enough out of it, just like they always seem to when they win, to keep just enough drives alive to put the points on the board that were the difference. That's really all there is to it. Their run game was just effective enough to sustain enough drives to get them the winning margin. Well, the uh, the thing that I've seen reported is that in the week leading up to the game, uh, nobody was really sure what to do. Kevin Steele was the interim head coach, but he decided, he said, and I quote, I'm not going to play the part of the head coach in this game. I'm going to focus on the defense. And uh, so I don't know. Uh, it's reasonable to assume that, I mean, I mean, the game did play out as though none of the coaching parts of the coaching staff were talking to each other. <laughs> yeah. But that's not to say that Northwestern <laughs> didn't deserve the win and absolutely earn it. I mean, Auburn's still a, a pretty substantially more talented team than Northwestern, but this was yet again an example of superior coaching prevailing for Northwestern. And we talked a little bit earlier about the possibility of Pat Fitzgerald uh, leaving Evanston. Boy, I have no idea what they do in the event that that happens because, I mean, with Jim Phillips having just left to take the commissioner job, it was the ACC or the Big 12? ACC. Okay. So with him having just left to take that job, I don't, first of all, I don't know if he's technically still there or if he's, if it's like a, all right, I'm going to take this job in a couple months, find my replacement kind of thing. I would figure that's what it was, but if it's Gerald were to leave, they would probably have to hand hiring his replacement to an interim athletic director. Talk about a disaster. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I actually posted this as a, uh, as a joke from a champagne room account saying that, uh, Oh, well, what they should do is just name Pat Fitzgerald, the athletic director, and then he'll leave for Texas in three years. And then the president will name the defensive coordinator, the head coach, and then you'll suck for 30 years. <laughs> now, of course, a lot of Northwestern kids that I te- that, 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 that saw this one didn't get it, but uh, that's because it references a football event that happened prior to 1995. Exactly what John McAvick did at Illinois, because we fired an athletic director and then named the football coach the athletic director, and then he left. Well, there's no other way to get him to stay but besides giving him more money and power, right? <laughs> <laughs> Apparently not. <laughs> All right. On to the Bloomington Onion Bowl, uh, specifically the Outback. The Bloomington Onion Bowl. In which our beloved Hoosiers did fall short against Lane Kiffin's Ole Miss. I meant so to- See, that totally validates that Indiana was terrible and that they actually, they, 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 you know, turns out Ohio State was also bad. And Ohio State probably doesn't deserve to be in the playoff. Right. It turns out everybody who said Indiana was good was wrong because they lost a football game. Yeah, by one score again, you know against, again, a team with more talent than, than them. I meant to watch this game, and then I totally forgot it was happening because I was sort of – I was already kind of starting to swirl into that existential dread, like, oh, God, the holidays are over. There's not a holiday after this until – Oh, Eve. shit, going to have to wake up. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that was the thing, like, I'm going to have to be up not only before night. Like, I'm – not only can I not sleep until 9 o'clock every day, now I have to be showered and breakfasted and working by then. <laughs> so – Anyway, to shake that off for just a little bit longer, we're here recording the evening of the third. Uh, the, the sleeping hour before the return to work is upon us. 
there was a truly bonkers stat line in this game, though, which is that Wap Fillier, Indiana's probably best receiver, although, I mean, Fry Fogel really had a great season this year. But anyway, Wap Fillier, very important player for Indiana, had 18 catches in this game. <laughs> Normally, you see a line like that, that kind of volume. 264, three touchdowns. Yeah, you, you think, wow, that guy absolutely shredded the opposing secondary. Huge yardage all day. Banner day for the passing game. No, those 18 catches turned into 81 yards. 81 yards? Yeah, that's not really a, like a fantastic rushing line. That's like, okay. That's like four rushing. and a half yards a catch. That's like, that's impossible. <laughs> I have no idea how you would do that, even if you tried. No, I, I looked at this box score in a little bit each because, again, I missed almost the entire game. I only saw the very end of it. There were a couple of negative yardage plays in there that is going to drag your average down, but I, it's just difficult to understand how, with so many catches, a guy as good with the ball in his hands as Wap's player didn't make more yardage with it. Um, so, you know, it's fair to say that with Jack Tuttle under center and for the injured Michael Penix, that Indiana's offense does not have the same vertical element that it did before. So uh, it pretty safe. Like, look, Toro wasn't terrible, but it's pretty safe to say that when Penix Jr. is healthy, he is the quarterback. There's not going to be a quarterback controversy the way there was with Penix and Ramsey, where you've got two guys who both have a strong hit. Now, it's going to be Penix's job as soon as he's able to do it. There were a few key moments that, you know, un- it was kind of an uncharacteristic loss for Indiana because this year they have been so much about making the play in the big moment. And of course the biggest one was the very first one when they go for the two point conversion to win it against Penn state and they get it, you know, the iconic play Penix Jr. diving for the pylon, whether you believe he made it or not, shout out to our Penn state conspiracy fans out there. Um, Most of the season, they were all about making those plays, even against Ohio state, they were so close, but in this game, all the key moments went against them. Biggest one I thought was actually pretty early in the game. Indiana's got fourth and one, they're going for it. They pick it up, but they get flagged for an illegal shift. Five yards moves them from a fourth and one to a fourth and six, and they take the field goal instead. That was especially important because even though, you know, Ole Miss's reputation this year is basically one of, you know, they're like Memphis of the last couple of years where they're just racing up and down the field, playing no defense at all. But their defense really, you know, made IU's offense struggle. Like they ground them down to a halt, basically. In the first half, Indiana only had two drives that went more than 13 yards. One of those was that possession where they're getting close to the red zone. They pick up this fourth down, but it gets called back. That felt like a big moment that did not go Indiana's way, whereas most of the season, they've been getting those moments. So in Final Fantasy Tactics, your units have a couple of innate uh, stat values, one of which is faith, which is an interesting mechanic because the higher your faith value is, the more magic has an effect on you. It's essentially how much you believe in magic, which means if your faith is high, then that means healing magic and, and you know, buffing magic is very powerful on you and affects you greatly, but so too does offensive magic against you. So you lower your magic resistance with low faith, but also healing magic doesn't work that well against you. And essentially what happened here is that Indiana was magic powered all season and they ran into an opponent with low faith. <laughs> Because all of that stuff, all of those things, all those times when you've been watching Indiana all year and you think they can pull this off, they couldn't pull it off. It just didn't happen. Just, you know, the the coins came up, came up the wrong way. Yeah. And, it, you know, if you're talking about things that you want a game plan for, 
I kind of doubt that Indiana put together a lot of game film on Ole Miss's backup quarterback as their go-to receiver on the decisive drive of the game. Well, maybe they should have watched the Rutgers film more because that's the only place where I've seen that one happening. <laughs> oh, apparently so. Uh, Lang and Vedrill, 2024. It's unfortunate because, you know, Indiana, I mean, they had this breakthrough season. They ended a couple of these long losing streaks they, for most of the, I mean, I don't think even with this loss, I don't think there's any doubt that they're like a top 10, top 15 team this year, but losing the bowl game, you know, they could not make it to Indianapolis. They didn't get to play Purdue. So they don't have the bucket. They tried twice and don't have the bucket to show for it for this year. Really all that they've got in the trophy case, I believe, I don't know if Indiana has any other trophies I'm unaware of, but they get the old brass platoon out of this season. Like that's what they have to put in the trophy case, which is kind of a bummer because the season definitely meant more than that or at least it should have. And I understand if Indiana fans are still disappointed, but look, you got a lot of the things that you've been aching for for so long. The fact that you weren't able to break through and get it all in one season, I think that, that kind of just makes the pursuit a little bit. It, I, this should put a little more wind in your sails to hope the next couple of years, right? Because I, I still can't get away from how much this Indiana team, where it is, reminds me of MSU in like 2010. I'm not predicting a run like MSU would go on from there, but the the teams just feel so similar. Bowl games always seem so decisive and important right after they happen. But really, if you kind of look at the arc of history, they're more often aberrations than not. Yeah, I mean, in in the entirety of D'Antonio's run at MSU, which I think as time goes by, I'm going I'm going to get over the dire circumstances he left the team in, especially if they actually turn it around a little quicker than I hoped. But if I think about his 13 years there, really, <clears throat> aside from the Big Ten championship games, which I think are kind of a different thing, a conference championship, he went to a bowl in, I think, like 12, 11 or 12 of the seasons he was there. And of all those games, the only ones that really stick out in my mind are the Rose Bowl, obviously. And the Capital One Bowl, they played against Georgia, which went to you know multiple overtimes. It was very dramatic. Not the Baylor Cotton Bowl? Why do I remember that yeah, and you don't? I remember, I mean, look, I remember it, but only because I studied this program closely. Like, in terms of the moments that stick out in my mind, the Cotton Bowl was always, so it's like, you know, all right, well, you took us to the Rose Bowl, we went to the playoff, we went to two Big Ten title games. Oh, yeah, there was that Cotton Bowl in there, too. Like, that's, that's like the next, it's like the last thing in the series of major accomplishments. It was a fun game, don't get me wrong. Um, but it just doesn't stick out the same way because the bowl games generally don't. I mean, it, yeah, the cut short of the Rose Bowl, I think the conference title games were much more important to me than the Cotton Bowl or any other non-Rose Bowl game, basically. The playoff is a little bit of a different thing, but it's also kind of tinted by exactly how badly that went. So um, kind of losing track of my point here. For me, I just like resetting the losing streaks. We got Wisconsin last year. That was our longest one. Uh, <laughs> Ohio State, I have no idea when we're going to get a chance to. And that one kind of doesn't even matter anymore because they're not even really playing the same sport. So the big one that's up is Iowa. It'd be nice to beat Northwestern someday again before they become the longest one. But uh, Iowa's the big one. Uh, we haven't beaten them since 2008, but we also didn't play them for like six years after that. Well, I mean, now you're back on the yearly schedule for that. So... All right, I suppose we beat around the bush long enough that we got to talk about the game that, according to, again, according to the national media, is the only one that actually mattered their conference played in this postseason. 
Sugar Bowl, Ohio State and Clemson. The 11th ranked Ohio State Buckeyes, as our own Gopher 3 noted in his recap of the game. Correctly so, by the way. It's not very often that an Ohio State fan has a legitimate right to feel grieved or uh, disrespected, but make no mistake, that's what Dabo Swinney intended. Um, And, you know, I I feel as though after this game, he might have to put Ohio State in the top, what, seven, eight? Who knows? Um, He has has to release another ballot, and I can't wait. I just think it was really fun that both Dabo and Nick Saban thought that, well, thought that, well, Alabama should play Texas A&M and Clemson should play Notre Dame. Like both those coaches <laughs> voted for that. Yeah. Well, I mean, they both voted for what they wanted to see because you know, yeah. they won that game. Already, so. Exactly. I would want to play against a team that I beat by 28. I also feel as though, you know, and this is about the last, this is about the only thing I'm going to say about the, uh, about the, the Rose bowl game, college football playoff semifinal from the AT&T Jerry Dome with the sunset over the Walmart. And I'm going to vomit into my microphone. Uh, featuring Alabama me, and Notre Dame. If you keep reminding me that Alabama and Notre Dame played the Rose Bowl in fucking Texas, I'm going to vomit into my microphone. <laughs> hey, did you happen to see that they actually put up a big picture of the Rose Bowl sunset in the fourth quarter of that game on the big <laughs> no. Jumbotron? No, I didn't. I missed that. Uh, yeah, the it overlooks a Walmart and a lot of other parking lots. And what 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 was that? There's like a, a little like oh. like dental place. I don't know. It's just kind of in the middle of like a a strip mall. I I can feel my blood pressure rising. I hate it so much. I hate it. I hate it. Biggest regret of my lifetime is not finding some way to make it to the 2008 Rose Bowl. Um, because I'm probably never gonna get a chance like that. I could have gone to the last real one and I decided not to because I, well, I was broke. So it would have been, With the, yeah, I probably could have gone. It was the last real one. Yeah. The college football playoff ate it now. So now until that thing I keep talking about where all the TV powers just decide they're done carrying all this dead weight of these other universities, uh, never going to get it back. But anyway, we're going to bury that subject with one more thing about the fact that I think the only reason it wasn't as bad as everybody wanted it to be is because Nick Saban didn't want Jimbo Fisher to be able to claim a national title when they won by more than 28 against Notre Dame. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. Anyway. That's about all I was to say. So I actually, as much as we've groused about, oh, well, Ohio State's a whole different thing and this playoff's not for us. I have to admit, as I was watching this game, I did find it pretty entertaining. And it's not because the players were of so much higher quality than mine that I just, oh, my mind was blown by what I was seeing. No, it was just because even though the score opened up a little bit, it was a pretty good game, I thought. Um, especially because, you know, from the Ohio State perspective, they, Ryan Day reminded reminded himself, I think, at some point that, oh, oh yeah, Trey Sermon's real good and my offensive line absolutely kicks ass. And Honestly, Clemson's defense, especially on the defensive line, isn't what it has been recently. Not to say they're not good. They just, you know, they don't have four first-round defensive linemen. So when you've got Wyatt Davis and Josh Myers, yeah, why don't you run behind those guys? And it turned out to be extremely profitable for him. But Ohio State still threw the ball enough. And Justin Fields, I think, clearly had a little bit of uh chip on his shoulder in this game. Is that fair to say? I don't know if you can say that for a guy who was the number two recruit in his own class behind the opposing quarterback, justifiably so, honestly. A guy who's still going to be a first-round pick, even if he's not the number two pick anymore. Like, 
a chip on Justin Fields' shoulder is very different than a chip on a shoulder for. <laughs> I am really sick of hearing those kind of narratives because it was like, okay, Aaron Rodgers had a chip on his shoulder from not getting an offer out of high school. That's reasonable. Aaron Rodgers has a chip on his shoulder because he wasn't picked first overall. He still got picked in the first fucking round and then ended up being like, imagine if he had not been picked by the Packers. Like, would he be in the league right now? Who knows? Uh, But in particular, in this case, it's like, oh, they thought I was the best, except for this one guy. There is no higher form of disrespect. (laughs) Like like when everybody was talking about how nobody believed in Tim Tebow, he was a first round goddamn draft pick. Everybody believed in Tim Tebow. People believed way more in Tim Tebow than they should have reasonably. Yeah, belief in Tim Tebow became an absolutely unreasonable thing towards the end when there was, I mean, because obviously, you know, belief is what you have in the absence of evidence. The problem with Tim Tebow was the evidence accumulated after that. It's no longer possible to believe in him if you wanted to keep your job as an NFL GM or coach. So um, all but just to say that, yeah, maybe it's a, it's a little bit ridiculous for a guy in Justin Fields' position to feel slighted or disrespected. Those concerns, by the way, have been entirely valid because even in this game where his overall stat line looks absolutely great, that interception he threw, though, was him heaving essentially a Hail Mary into triple coverage, which was easily intercepted, and put enough wind in Clemson's sail that they've kept the game competitive for like eight or ten more minutes of game clock than they would have otherwise. So, look, the, this hesitation, the fact that he sometimes forces the ball. There were a couple other instances. He chucked a ball, I think, towards Olave on the sideline. When he had an, he had his slot receiver on an underneath route that easily would have picked up a first down, they had to punt after that. There were a couple moments in this game that if you're if you're an NFL team thinking about spending a top five pick on him, you could easily look at it and say, look, yeah, that's a concern. We'll note that. Doesn't mean they're not going to pick the guy because he's still the second best quarterback in this draft, but there's a, there's a little bit of concern there. I will say, however, that there is no doubt he throws a Rocky Lombardi level deep ball. <laughs> indeed he does um you laugh like i'm joking all best to rocky lombardi future northern illinois husky hey man that's i mean that's a great destination for him to be perfectly honest once upon a time i'm not quite sure it's it, it, they're not exactly where they were eight ten years ago you know well but a mac team that can reasonably compete i mean that's honestly i didn't oh, think yeah, brandon yeah. peters was going to go to illinois i thought he would go and just set the mac on fire and and just Bowling Green Falcons, Mac, whichever division champions. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely what I thought was going to happen. Um, you know, and one of the big moments in the game actually was uh, that that turned out to be a huge advantage to Ohio State was when uh, what's the guy's name? Peter Skalski. I want to say Peter because that's a very that's a name that goes with Skalski. I believe so. Uh, yes. Got ejected because uh, all of a sudden the run defense was uh, a lot less uh, formidable. After that, yeah, one. it's the se- second consecutive playoff level game that Skalski's been ejected from for targeting. Which, you know, if you want to say, "Oh man, that's a bit, it's a big challenge for Clemson," maybe you should teach your middle linebacker defensive play caller not to target, like because it absolutely was targeting. I mean, he had the he, he had his helmet lowered like he was a bighorn sheep about to challenge somebody for dominance, and he hit Fields right in the kidney with it. So yeah, it was targeting. Usually, that that kind of thing doesn't get called because. It feels like refs are only looking for the helmet to helmet stuff, but yeah, he absolutely, he lowered his helmet so far. I think the ref couldn't overlook it. It was a good call. And the thing is we talked, we touched earlier about institutional commitment to football. Now that 
play right there, that moment with Justin Fields was really a big indicator of what we're talking about because oh, oh yeah, Justin Fields was able to successfully wave off all attempts at medical examination, and there still is no concrete diagnosis as to what happened to him because the point was never to find one. The point was for him to remain in the game. Um, if that happens at, and it's like, it's Illinois beating Nebraska because Brandon Peters did the same thing. There's going to be a lot of very scathing articles written about the, the state of Illinois sideline and what just, what the hell is going on here. But instead, basically like our teams, Illinois football, Michigan state football, a lot of football, it's not worth jeopardizing these players health for but to national media ohio state football very much is and that's well that's especially true in the on the backdrop of the entire world facing a pandemic and we're still playing college football like yeah that's it's true it's more obviously true now than it's ever been before like we know for sure this is a thing that will not be sacrificed (laughs) so yeah yeah, that individual player was able to stay out there when maybe he at least should have gotten looked at a little more closely by trainers. That's not surprising at all. Um, and yeah, I mean, they showed a couple shots of him on the sideline and then I feel I maybe this is the height of paranoia, but it feels like at some point the producer was like, stop cutting to him. He still looks hurt. And he's yeah, back in the game. Didn't like, notice that. And the question is like, I'm sorry. I was just gonna say like, he's, he's taken warm some practice those on the sideline. He's in obvious pain. And so the question then becomes, well, is he in, is he merely in bad pain or is he actually injured? We're never going to know. Yeah. And the question is, obviously there's a lot more that Michigan could do, but is Michigan willing to be like this to basically be a pro team? Like, cause that's what it is going to take to compete with Ohio state. Really Penn state's the only program that I could see doing that but even they are going to be under more scrutiny because of that thing that nobody likes to talk about that happened nine years ago and and even though it has nothing to do with how they're handling player injuries and stuff it still casts a little bit of a pall on should we trust them with everything but well it's the question institutional commitment to football are you going to be willing to do these things Supposedly the Shane Morris moment was the final nail in Brady Hoke's coffin. I don't know if I buy that. That ship was pretty clearly taking on water by then anyway, but I don't know. I don't think that the powers that be at Michigan will put up with that. So, and it was an excuse to, I mean, I don't see where the difference is between what, what everything that was cited in the firing of Tim Beckman and exactly what happened on the Ohio state sideline. And yeah, it became way more compelling to watch. Now it's a great story. Justin Fields comes back and plays through injury, but we're examining this uh, kind of knowing a little more about the game than that, than what we're yeah. going to be sold by the talking heads on the major networks. So like that kind of highlights the difference, doesn't it? Yeah, well, and it also, again, the, the difference, I suppose, and again, without knowing the actual extent of what happened to Fields, I wonder if we're straying from the path a little bit here, but the difference between this situation and the one with Tim Beckman's Illinois is that there's enough in it for everyone here that they're all on the same page. Tim Beckman's tenure at Illinois was such a flaming disaster that the players didn't get enough benefit out of it to justify putting up with that. If Ohio State wasn't playing for a national title, presumably Fields would have said something, wouldn't have rushed back out there. You know, it he made his decision. I mean, nobody held him down and, and, or, you know, shoved him back out there and said, look, kid, you got to play. Um, 
So I, I don't, that's the biggest difference really is there's something in it for him too. So but, yeah, that's the question is, are you going to be looked at as the caretakers of amateur athletes or with the same level of scrutiny that the Pittsburgh Steelers got when a visibly confused Ben Roethlisberger still had the state of mind in a playoff game to socially distance from the training staff <laughs> and make sure they couldn't check him for the signs of an obvious concussion that he had. Yeah. Um, I, I, I feel like there's, again, I don't know if I want to go down this road without actually knowing what happened to fields, but there's an, there's an obvious parallel there. Right. Um, okay. So to get back to the X's and O's of this a little bit more before we get too far off the rails, um, Ohio state's defense did also impress a lot in this game. Now, again, you give up 28 points and you might think, well, that's not that great, but keep in mind, this is the obvious number one pick in the draft in Trevor Lawrence that you're facing. And although he still piled up 400 yards, this game was the definition of a boat race because Clemson could not slow down Ohio State's offense. And on the defensive side, towards the end of the game, Ohio State does not have the same kind of playmaker on this defense that they have the last really several years. Like they don't have a Chase Young. They don't have either of the Bosa's. But the pieces, especially on the defensive line, are coming together at the right time. On the interior, Togiai and Garrett, made it really difficult to run. I mean, again, keep in mind, you're going up against Travis Etienne, who's the all-time leading rusher in the ACC. I'm sorry, don't I, you mean ETN? I guess so. They did make a weird point of saying it that way. They've always a, said it, ETN. If it's a French-derived name, I don't think that's the correct pronunciation, but, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, I think, a, I think ETN is to Clemson what Mohammed Ibrahim is to Minnesota. <laughs> that's exactly what I was going to point out, that we just listened a whole season of you know mayo eating big 10 network announcers being like mohammed ibrahim so i guess maybe we should stop maybe we should stop nitpicking that i guess i don't know anyway 32 yards on 10 carries for the all-time leading rusher in the ACC's history that's that's the point that i wanted to make um and then towards the end of the game when you're in obvious pass rush situations again despite not having kind of that top shelf option that they have in the past Tyreek Smith and Jonathan Cooper were the answer for Ohio State late with their pass rush. They applied enough pressure and actually sacked Lawrence a couple times, which is something that, I mean, that's kind of an underrated, like when people talk about Trevor Lawrence, I think for the most part, they're most impressed by his arm, but his ability to avoid sacks, read the pocket while still looking downfield, like the whole package part of it, I think is what sets him apart from previous top prospects. But even he wasn't able to get away um, from the way that Smith and Cooper were working. Clemson. He's got just a little bit of that Colin Kaepernick ostrich speed. Yeah, where it's like, well, oh, how are you moving so quickly? <laughs> right, and it's like, uh, <laughs> exactly, because it, like, it, it, it never looks like all of his limbs are quite coordinated together, but then it just works, and like he lets go of the ball, like, holy hell. Like, well, it, it looks like he's moving so slowly when he takes off running, but then you look at the yard Yard marks. It's like, wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> and that is one other thing. You know, last the last time they ran into Trevor Lawrence, um, he he really ripped them on the ground with that keeper game that they seemed unprepared for. They were much more ready for it this time. Every time they did one of those fake pitch plays and tried to run the other way, he caught a face full of defensive linemen. So they were certainly a lot more schematically prepared in this game, it felt like, than they were in the past. Um, and I guess the last thing we should shout out is, you know, Justin Hilliard is part of this linebacking core for Ohio State that has a lot of recruiting hype and a lot of experience, but it has not felt like they've had a really disruptive game breaking player there since Raekwon McMillan left. 
Uh, but Hilliard had a tremendous game. Uh, he, he was fantastically disruptive and a really nice kind of crescendo to, a, to I guess, what you would have to call a relatively disappointing career given he was, you know, one of these five-star top 15 overall prospects. So uh, able to finish on a nice high note for him going into this title game, at least. So. Well, I mean, so was Oluwale Batiku. So, you know, could be worse. Um, so the other thing I want to point out with uh, Ohio State is that Trey Sermon <laughs> made a great business decision to to ditch the sinking ship that was perennially top 10 uh, five-time-in-a-row Big 12 champion Oklahoma Sooners and get to a real <laughs> football team. Uh, and it worked out well, for him. And that just, that just infuriates me because, like, oh, shit, does Oklahoma suddenly have to worry about Spencer Rattler? Uh, what about uh, Charleston Rambo, whose name I just love? <laughs> I mean, does well, Turner a, Yell want to go and be a defensive play ma- a difference maker over there? Look, it's been a long time since Oklahoma had a Heisman candidate, you know, number one overall pick at quarterback, right? Like it's that didn't happen this season, which is an extremely long drought. So, yeah, times. Yeah, there. of course. I mean, Florida obviously they they didn't particularly care about that game at all. But anyway, um, in the aftermath of this game, you've got to wonder a couple of things. One. Um, how exactly are they going to, is Ohio state going to deal with Devonte Smith Two, That's going to be a problem. <laughs> yeah. Two, what will Dabo do with his final coaches poll? And three, man, what kind of things happen around the Buckeyes facility between the time a few weeks ago when they looked at their roster and said, you know, we legally can play Illinois, but we can't risk getting on that plane to Champaign. <laughs> and now, uh, Hey, man, they're the ones that said they could have played. (laughs) Right. They didn't want me to make this joke. They shouldn't have said that. It's true. Uh, It's true. We'll get into a preview in a little more detail of the Ohio State-Alabama matchup in a minute. First, though, some national news with the end of the rest of the college football season. We would be remiss not to point out that the most important football program in the world, Turksus, has filed Tom Herman or fired Tom Herman for what I have chosen to describe as insufficient yeehaw. Um, yes. So I had it on good authority that this was going to happen, that the athletic director never had any intention of keeping Tom Herman, but he decided that he was going to string along this big recruiting class that they had come in because, you know, it's really easy to lie to kids. Because, you know, kids. college athletics. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, we have fun. The thing is, they thought that what they were going to do was keep Herman and keep these kids believing it was going to be Herman and then fire him. But within two minutes announced it's Urban Meyer making 12 million a year. So in theory, all the kids are no, no kids going to be like, oh, shit, I have to play for Urban Meyer now. God damn it. Um, (laughs) But that's not what happened. No, instead, uh, more recently, again, the story just broke over the weekend. They hire Alabama offensive coordinator Steve Arkeesian. His history is well documented. I don't think there's any need for us to get into that. Because we've discussed him as a possible candidate for Illinois uh, several times because, you know, always discussing candidates for Illinois. Um, but it's interesting. What basically, you know, my source of Texas said was that the main reason Tom Herman was fired was because he was uh, a huge asshole and a drunk who went one and four against Oklahoma. So you can do two of those things, but not three of them. You have to, at some point, beat your rival, unless you're Michigan. You can do two of those things, but not so. So you could you could go one and four against Oklahoma and be an asshole as long as you were sober. Well, yeah, you don't you don't really the the the, the 
the boosters, the powers that be will think that, okay, well, this person's an asshole, but maybe you can still believe that they can get things right. Whereas if they're off the wagon all the time, then you, you just believe, okay, well, now this person's just embarrassing me because, you know, when, when I'm drunk off my ass, it's not in public um, because I'm really good <laughs> at keeping those things off the internet. Um, okay. And but so also the postmortem on Tom Herman sounds a lot like what I'm worried about the postmortem being on Brett Bielema. Well, well, hey, hey, hey. Before, before we inevitably pivot to discuss Illinois, I want to work through another scenario here. So if you were then drunk all the time and one in four against Oklahoma, but you weren't an asshole, then also you could potentially. Ah, he's just a real fun guy. You know, who yeah. among us doesn't like to have a good time at the end of the day. He's just a good guy. He's trying. He's a good old boy. He likes a good time just as much as any of us. And you know what? They're almost there. Give him yeah, another okay. go around. Okay. 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 And of course, I mean, the easiest one of these, I, we don't even need to run through why if you're beating your rival and doing all the good things on the field and your coach is an asshole and drunk all the time, of course he's going to stay. Um, yeah. Okay. All right. So Brett Bielema would still be at Wisconsin if he never left. Yeah. Yeah, but see, again, that's a different because they didn't fire him. Well, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Like, they wouldn't have gotten oh, yeah, rid of yeah. him because he would never have ticked the because you know he just de- never ticked three of those. They would have. They would have put up with him. He would have averaged nine and a half wins a season over the last decade. I have no doubt. No doubt in my mind. Yep. Um, closer to home. I don't believe there's been any update on this. Michigan has reportedly offered Jim Harbaugh a five-year extension of unclear yearly value or total value there has not been an indication yet whether he's going to that or not um obviously there are multiple jobs open doesn't feel like he's particularly likely to leave for another college job because where is he going to have it better than he does in michigan nowhere right but the spectrum is still out there uh i don't know man again this we've talked about this so much i really don't want to go back through it in any great detail but I'm just like, I was thinking a little bit about the season Michigan just had and the overall trajectory. And I don't know if, if I'm a Michigan fan, I don't know if I want him to stay or not. I really don't. I mean, the season was a complete and abject disaster, right? There are some things that you can excuse. For example, the defense not really having any pass rush is excusable when you remember that Aiden Hutchinson and Quiddy Pay, who were both, you know, all American candidate types, were both hurt for big portions of the season. And then we talk about problems on offense. Well, you've got four new offensive linemen, and then your two offensive tackles both get hurt for huge portions of the season. You've got a new quarterback. Like there are def- there are things you can look at and be like, okay, that can't, like we should have expected some problems there. Losing to this Michigan State team should never have been a possibility. <laughs> well, because they basically they had one game that if you're a Michigan fan, you're like, all right, this is a decent team. And that's that- Minnesota, the first Minnesota, game. Yeah, and then after that. Nothing. I mean, they won a triple overtime dogfight against goddamn Rutgers, which again, much better team, but Illinois handled them in regulation. Uh, they got pounded into dust by Wisconsin and Indiana. They and, lost to the worst Michigan State team that I can remember. Yeah. And look, they're, they're obviously like, they don't, they'll be fine if they just ignore further reference to what happened with calling off the Ohio State game. But you know, the Buckeyes are never going to let them forget it. They're going to be saying until the end of time, you chickens wouldn't even play us. And you use the global pandemic as pretext to get out of the game, capital T, capital G. That's what this season is going to be. It's going to be, 
one embarrassing landmark after another. Because again, every year or every week, there was another new statistic. We talked about this a couple times. Some remarkable new thing that they, you know, they've oh, they've never lost to a team 0-5 or worse. Well, they did this, you know. So every week there was something. Um, and yeah, that Ohio State thing. I, that- the rise and fall of Joe Milton. I mean, like everything about this season was embarrassing for Michigan that happened after the Minnesota game. Everything. Yeah. Yeah. And honestly, I do feel like the, the fall part of that was entirely unavoidable once he gave that interview after the Michigan. Yep. It just feels like, oh, this is not going to end well. It's too bad because he's probably a great guy. He's certainly got some physical talent. But I was like, yep, it, this ain't going to work. Not here. It, maybe he'll transfer and be decent, but it ain't him. And sure enough, by the end of the year, they were putting an injured backup in instead of going to him. So I don't know if you want to keep Harbaugh there or not. Anyway, we also mentioned Urban Meyer. This isn't necessarily Big Ten news because obviously he doesn't coach for us, but he covers the conference a lot. And the word going around the internet this weekend was that he is preparing a staff, anticipating being offered and accepting the Jaguars job. Please just take it so that we don't have to see your face on Saturdays anymore. And so that you can stop being the uh, shadow administrator of the Ohio State program. We know. Sure, that um, would be nice too. Yeah, it would. Um, what is interesting about the Jaguars is that they had a situation today where what they could have done was knocked the Colts out of the playoffs by beating them for their only two wins of the year in week one and week 17. <laughs> that's what you see. And that's because they didn't do it. That's, that's why you'll, you'll never convince me that divisional matchups in the NFL matter outside of a handful of exceptions. Like I grant you that Steelers Ravens is a game people care about. Packers bears is a game people care about. Maybe my brother's a big chiefs fan. I gathered from being around him that chiefs Broncos is a game they care about. I don't think there's many others, you know, maybe you want to say like Eagles giants or whatever. Some of those NFC East games, the people seem to care, but most of them, the teams, the organizations doesn't mean anything to them. They've got their eyes on the prize and these emotional attachments, these rivalries, they mean nothing to the teams. So, well, I mean, the same is true sometimes in college football, especially when you get an NFL coach in there and all of a sudden your team can't be bothered to show up for its rivalry game. Uh, At the end of the day, Lovey Smith was mediocre. I was going to say that I, I can't think of an example where that's demonstrably the case, but yeah. (laughs) All right. We're going to roll straight into our title game preview because one game is a little bit too short for us to leave by itself. Ohio state, Alabama, um, I haven't checked an updated betting line on this, but Alabama opened as a pretty, I think like a touchdown favorite ESPN, according to their football power index, which is a complicated, mostly bullshit thing based on your know, recruiting and how much they like you. Um, but nonetheless gives you some idea of the relative strength it makes Alabama better than an 80% favorite to win this game. And that apparently would have been the case regardless of what happened in the sugar bowl, because that game between Ohio State and Clemson was essentially a coin flip, according to ESPN. Well, so, we actually talked about this. We texted about this during the Ohio State-Clemson uh, game, um, during one of those semifinal games. One of the things I love about the NFL is their scheduling, which always ends yeah. up making it so that, the, so that the divisional games are the most important ones to make in the playoffs against your rivals, and also so that it usually has the playoff teams playing against each other near the beginning of the year like the previous team years playoff teams. So like you're Alabama and you've just, uh, to borrow a Northwestern term, you've fuck sawed the SEC all year 
It's kind of like, well, you're just waiting for an opponent and you got Notre Dame. And so you're still waiting for an opponent, <laughs> right? Like you're, yeah. you're, you're the, you're the guy at uh, the end of the first season of one punch man uh, who hasn't, who hasn't been able to break out of his armor for like 20 years as he scoured the universe, looking for someone powerful <laughs> enough to challenge him. Uh, <laughs> what, what, what else can you say about that? Like you're, you're, you're like a, you're a legendary orc warrior wandering the countryside in search of a warrior that is, uh, that is strong enough to give you the warrior's death you deserve. Right. Like, can you give me an honorable game kind of thing? Um, the difference between this game and the Clemson matchup for Ohio State, I think, is the Buckeyes are not going to have as much of an advantage in the trenches as they've had in that game and in pretty much every other game this season. You know, the last two games in particular, the way the Alabama or the Ohio State offensive line has just blown holes open for Trey Sermon. I don't think that's going to be happening as much when it's you know Christian Barmore and Dylan Moses pursuing the run. Um, this Bama front seven is probably not quite as grisly as some of the ones they've had in the past, but it's loaded for bear. They're they're going to hold up to the Ohio State run game pretty well, I think. And on the flip side. If you want to find somebody who's able to stand up to a guy like Wyatt Davis, Barmore, you know, Barmore is that, oh, I'm sorry, that's the part I already talked about. So on the other side, um, their offensive line, you know, Alex Leatherwood, they had a starter injured in the Notre Dame game. I haven't checked on his status yet, but across the front, they're big, they're capable. I think they said in the game against Notre Dame that Najee Harris is Alabama's all-time leading rusher now. I had no idea. Wow. Gotten a lot of carries the last couple seasons, but I just, I was like, you know, and it was Sean Alexander's record that he broke. I'm like, yeah, I guess that's kind of the start of modern Alabama offensive history. Yeah. Man, that's I guess it's true. You know, I guess it's true that most guys only have like one or two seasons as the guy because then the next guy's pushing you out to the NFL. <laughs> so, exactly. Um, well, man, what's here. amazing is uh, the only reason that he hasn't been challenged for carries is because Trey Sanders had that ACL tear yeah. Uh, yeah. last year that kind of limited him. I don't know haven't seen very much of him I like, I like the idea that Alabama always has some some top 10 recruits at running back they're just kind of floating around that you forgot about yeah they're just waiting their turn and it's like it, it's very rare for guys of that caliber to be willing to wait but this is the one thing where Nick Saban can be like look you're gonna get your chance and it's gonna go great you just gotta wait because this guy in front of you is a couple of years older he knows the playbook better um in my opinion Nick Saban was the most likable coach in this college football playoff field by a mile, by a mile, but yeah, which really? is, I mean, Stunt. he resembled Stunt. a human person substantially more than any of his competitors. I mean, obviously Brian Kelly, you know, we could devote a whole podcast to how he, even in a, in a profession littered with terrible people, he really stands out as the worst. Yep. Yeah. You're a mm-hmm. Um Dabo just, you know, Holy shit. Like he's, 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 He's basically, he's kind of like Coach K, except he's a little more like, he's like Coach K, except he doesn't try to hide the sleazy stuff as hard. Yeah, he doesn't need to. He he doesn't feel the need to because he he hasn't, he's Coach K if Coach K didn't care what other people thought about him. Yeah. So, yeah. And then, you know, and Ryan Day had the whole pouting about the conference trying to keep his players safe at the beginning of the year thing so he's on our shit list well and then he's my god he said that that ohio state has the chance to go and win it all and write one of the best stories in sports so we're gonna have to hear about how it was one it was redemption because it was always redemption and two how 
back in August, everybody thought there was this pandemic that was really dangerous for people. And then Ohio State said, no, we want to play football. We don't care the co- when, whenever whenever you have to count the cost, it's worth all this loss so we can play football. There is no pandemic. And then people started to realize there is no pandemic. Let these brave young men play football. And they footballed and they footballed and Nebraska was right there with them. And at the end of the day, they won the national title to prove that there is no pandemic. There is only football. Football is the only thing that's infecting and killing hundreds of thousands of Americans. And you know what? That means they've taken to Valhalla. I haven't meant it this much in my life, except when Doug Jones unexpectedly won that runoff election. Roll Tide. Oh boy. You can cut it there if you want. But. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I had him. I mean, because like I could mention that Trey Sermon actually played Alabama in the playoffs before. Oh, shit. Uh, a couple of years ago, that. but he only had that scrub-ass Kyler Murray as his quarterback. <laughs> oh, geez. And they still got pounded. Oh. Yeah, they got crushed because, uh, because they couldn't run the ball. Because, again, <laughs> you know, they only had like – I mean, and, and this was, and this was, uh, actually, I remember that was an offensive line that sent several players to early rounds of the draft for Oklahoma, but that's that nowhere near good. as good as what Ohio State's doing. Yeah. Well, they, they had Orlando Brown that year, right? Yeah. They had Orlando Brown. So Trey, Her- Trey Sermon ran with Kyler Murray in the backfield and CeeDee Lamb at receiver behind an NFL offensive line and got absolutely stoned by Alabama. But then he decided, you know what? I'm going to take my talents to the next level (laughs) up from this. Or alternatively, maybe he was like, you know, I feel like the Big Ten's more likely to stop Ohio State from going than the Big 12 is from stopping Oklahoma. I don't want to play those bullies from Alabama again. I'm going to go off to Ohio State. It's still a top-tier program. I'll still play with a lot of great talent. We'll win a lot of games. But I don't have to play fucking Alabama again. And (laughs) There is no escape. Alabama is eternal. Yeah, well, again, this this is the one scenario when I wish I had somebody photoshopped for me a few years ago the Saban Kata Army, where it's just Saban's face on all the soldiers in the Terracotta Army. <laughs> yeah, that's more or less what we're dealing with. Um, <laughs> my goodness. You know, the thing is, what we're missing here, and this is what this preview is going to take the place of, is usually you get, in years past, in the middle of the week, you used to get a roughly four hour long national title game preview show. And there would also be like a Mac team playing a Sunbelt team in the background, but nobody was talking about that. Like, like they just, they just be showing a Mac team playing a Sunbelt team or whatever the hell the thing was while they talk about the national title game. It was all, it was always weird because I don't go daddy ball. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like the first time I noticed this phenomenon was when uh, Dan Lefevre was tearing up, uh, Oh my God, Western Kentucky? No, I don't know who, who it was that he was uh, incinerating, but like, <laughs> like, I don't think they said his name all night. Your source for Big Ten Talk, it's Off Tackle Empire!